Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Joining me on the program today is Chad DeBolt, Managing Director and Principal at Saxum Real Estate. Chad joins us today from Austin, Texas. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to have you on, Chad. I don't know that I've ever had any conversation with anyone at Saxum, which seems surprising given that you were one of the very first Opportunity Zone funds in the nation to launch way back in July of 2018. You've raised well over $100 million of Opportunity Zone equity through your platform across multiple fund offerings. So you've been there from the very get-go, Chad, you and your company, Saxon. But to start us off, why Opportunity Zones? Take us back to the beginning. What did you first like about the program and how have you seen it evolve since? Yeah, well, when we first read about the program, as you mentioned, we were one of the first funds in the nation to really start uh, aggressively entering the space once the initial zones were actually identified and released. And what was really unique to us was the fact it was a true win-win program. It was win-win in that you could adequately affect in a positive manner communities in need while at the same time adding value to the community's longer term. So there's an economic impact to get money in the communities while also adding value in, in building quality timeless real estate, which is what we do at Saxum. And it also was a fit to the general Saxon model because anyone involved in opportunities knows there's a substantial rehabilitation requirement. So you actually have to develop. You can't buy triple net Walgreens, arguably, in opportunity zones. And that was unique to us because that's exactly what we do. We're, we are a unique hybrid model where we are vertically integrated. We have a full development construction team, in-house leasing, acquisitions, you name it, legal, all the way to asset management and property management. So our company is built to be able to cradle the grave deals ourselves. And that's allowed us to be able to, again, do our own deals. So that's been very helpful. And then also, given that the Opportunity Zone program is, as you know, there's over 8,700 tracks nationally. It's a national program. So it created a definite first mover advantage to grow companies that we're looking to grow on a national scale. And that was very appealing to us because, again, we wanted to be able to diversify across more multiple different geographies as well as different asset classes, which is something that Saxon does. So for us, that was really unique where we could grow into different areas. For example, in Austin, Texas, we were the first developer in the nation to break ground in an olive deal in Austin, Texas. We're really proud to, to say that because we actually ended up moving our headquarters down here as well into that same building. So to grow to other states, Saxon was founded in, in, in New Jersey. So to be able to grow to a state like Texas and to execute deals in other markets, that was very exciting to us. So again, I think everyone would argue in a, in a day of in this age we live in now where it's challenging to get consensus, especially with the government. I'm very proud to say that this is one of the few bipartisan programs that the government has created that I think both sides agree on as being a positive. Yeah, agreed there. It uh, really is one of the very few truly bipartisan programs. I agree. So you're working with a lot of different property types. You're working in a lot of different target markets. You moved your company into an opportunity zone, which we'll talk about toward the end of the show and why that's so important. But Tell us a little bit more about your primary investment thesis. What is it that you're trying to accomplish at Saxum for your investors and what goals are you trying to achieve? Sure. 
over time, we've been definitely been focused on being agnostic on vertical and being opportunistic, find great opportunities, great deals, and be able to execute, again, across our vertically integrated platform. Over time, we've definitely become more focused on industrial and multifamily. Those have arguably been the two darling performers, during, especially during the pandemic. We had collections in Class A multifamily above 95%, and industrial has been by far the best performer in real estate versus any vertical in real estate over the last couple of years. I believe the number is about a 58% total return and the next closest multifamily is like 26% total return when you really look at those numbers. So those have been our main focus for a number of reasons. Obviously, people need to live somewhere and in, in industrial, that's all been logistics, supply chain based, which that market has had a huge flashlight shined on it, given the, the challenges at play. And there's a, there's a huge supply demand imbalance there that needs to be filled over the next 20 years. So we've definitely focused on that. And that's where when you look at Saxon, we have about 7 million square feet in control or in development, which represents about 1.7 billion in exit value when you look at look at what we're actually executing on. But those are our main focuses. Early on, as I mentioned though, we do have a very strong background in office, which involves you know some retail components in both multifamily and office, but we also are involved in student housing as well. So I would say good old 80-20 rule, our main focus is multifamily industrial, but we do have capabilities to execute in a meaningful way in a seamless way in those those other verticals. So what it really does from a high level, though, in terms of what we look at is it really is based on urbanization. So again, think of Texas Triangle. It's really unique. You know, 80% of uh, the GDP of Texas is in this Texas Triangle from Dallas down through Austin to San Antonio and east to Houston, which would represent the 13th largest country in the world on a GDP basis, just in that triangle. Texas by itself as a state would be the ninth largest country in the world. So we try to focus on these areas where there's growth, where people want urban-centric lifestyles. Even if they're not right in the direct downtown, they want a 24-7 lifetime feel to where they live, where they can live, work, and play. So that basically bodes to markets that see growth, see population inflow. So think of smile markets, these smile states, obviously Texas part of that. And then we still will do deals where, of course, where we, uh, where we founded the company because the tri-state in the Northeast is still, is still a powerhouse. And there's still a lot of growth in terms of there's been a lot of growth there over time. There's still a lot of population that's there and will be there for years to come. So we do have a number of deals up there as well. But typically, it's urban-centric. We do heavier value-add deals, but I'd say over time, the company is focused more on opportunistic development opportunities. Okay, I think I got you. I think I got a handle on this now. So the, the, while you are property type agnostic and you're in a lot of different target markets, the common thread running through all of the real estate development that you're doing is that focus on urbanization and growth markets, the smile states, as you mentioned, a lot of people moving to the South, moving to red states in particular. I think that the pandemics accelerated that trend that was already going pretty strongly pre-2020. What about challenges that you face? Chad, you've been around since since the very get-go, as I mentioned, you know, July 2018 was just about as early as anybody could have possibly launched an OZ fund. Now, what are some challenges that you faced over the course of the last, what's it been now? I guess about three and a half years or so. Sure. Early on the program, it was hard to find challenges outside of structuring. You know, we were so early, we were basically learning with the accountants and the attorneys that drafted our docs at the same time, which is, that's usually not how it works. Uh, but we were made much better because of that. We had to roll up our sleeves and really learn about the program. That did make docs, um, you know, investment docs, operating agreements, PPNs, what have you, take longer than usual. So there was some time lag there. But that would, I'd say, was one of the initial challenges. I mean, finding deals, we were so early. You know, we had developers calling us in other markets, you know, and brokers that 
people didn't fully understand the program yet. So there's a wealth of opportunity there. And not to make a segue, by the way, but I would tell you, I still think the program, I still am having conversations now three and a half years later, where very financial driven people that understand markets that do not know about opportunity zones. So I would say this program is still in the early innings in general by far. I think it's second, third inning here. We're not towards the end. These assets have not been priced. And that would be, again, when you talk about challenges, I get that rebuttal a lot that, well, doesn't everyone know about this and the market's been priced? The prices on land basis and what have you has been adjusted to account for the tax incentives. And I'd tell you that's not true. Maybe in some markets, there's been some uptick, but in general, we're still seeing great opportunities to get good land basis and to find quality development opportunities. And we think we will continue to. In terms of other challenges, though, I would say, and this has been more a direct response of the crisis, has been managing, again, these are development deals, is managing budgets, construction costs, labor costs. You have a lot of cost push inflation going on, as well as demand pull. They're both happening at the same time. And that's why we're seeing these double-digit inflation numbers that's going on. And you have to be a very, we feel fortunate we built the company this way, you have to be a very in tune, again, vertically integrated company to manage those storms. Because you have to be very good on VE, you have to be very good at managing subs and, and managing your GCs to get quality projects done. You know, and I would tell any investor looking at opportunity zones, Remember, these are development deals. So make sure you're partnering with people that understand development. And that's why I brought the point where vertically integrated. There's a lot of funds out there and opportunity zones that are capital allocators or aggregators. They're aggregating, raising money, and they're finding developers, which is what we are as well, to partner with. We raise our own money and we are the developers. So we do both and we have both of those interests of our investors as fiduciaries of their capital in mind. So that's key to just think of when investors are trying to manage risk. But again, to bring it together, the speed in terms of you know legal know-how, understanding the program was a main challenge to start. And then more recently, managing these budgets uh, with really double, double, easily double-digit construction costs, growth year over year has been uh, has also been a challenge. But something we've been able to navigate. You know, and the last point I'll make it to that is the building I mentioned that we're going to talk about later that we moved into in Austin. We delivered that building on budget, on time during the pandemic, which is not easy given that it's made out of steel. We also delivered two of our industrial buildings, which again is unique, industrial odds deals that we've done. We delivered two of those buildings. We built the the buildings in nine months, again, on budget, on time during a pandemic, which is not easy. So I think that's a testament to the way we've built the company and our ability to execute given our development construction teams. Oh, that's great, Chad. A lot to think about there. You're right that uh, it's an important distinction that investors should consider when they're looking at different qualified opportunity funds. There are some funds that are just the capital allocator and they partner with developers. There's pros and cons to that method, but you guys are vertically integrated. You're not just the capital allocator. You're not just the investment firm acting as fiduciary to your investors, but you're also the development firm as well. And I've seen both be successful, but you certainly have a good argument for why uh, vertically integrated can help manage a lot of the uh, challenges and complexities of, of opportunity zone investing. I want to talk about your investor base for a moment here. Your platform overall is really diversified across multiple markets and multiple property types, but the way that you guys structure your funds is you have different single asset funds for each one of your development projects. What do you see from your investors typically? Do they they just like one or two of your deals at a time, or do you see them allocate their capital across multiple funds, or what's been typical that you've found in your experience, Chad? 
Yeah, it's a good point. And, and this goes back to when these funds are first being created. The final regs, again, we said we launched our first fund in July of 18. And fund is sometimes a misnomer because you think fund, you think multi-asset funds. That's what funds typically are, even though that was not the case here. But it wasn't fully clear of how a multi-asset fund would work until the final regs came out, which was at the end of 2019. And by that point, you guys were already going for a full year and a half. Yes, you bring up a really good point. So what keeps us up at night is obviously taking great care of our team and that we've assembled and, and taking great care of our investors and our tenants as well, obviously. But it being fiduciaries of investors' money, that's critical. And if you're selling someone on the proposition that you're going to retain and preserve their tax benefits and you're not operating in that manner, then you're doing them a disservice. Um, and, and that's a serious problem. So for us, what allowed us to move early, again, because we weren't a huge company, was that there wasn't a lot of red tape internally. It's just do the right thing, which is not difficult. Make sure you're educated so you know what the rules are and then do the right thing. So for us, we figured out what the rules were. What the government basically said was, as long as you're acting in the spirit of the current guidelines, then they assured us that that would be okay. So in other words, not assuming more than they were giving us, assuming what was given and basically feeling, you know, which is tough sometimes, trusting that the government would not go back on that in arrears and change all the rules. So there was some trust there as well, but that would create legal issues if they just completely took everything away and changed the rules when they said it was okay to do that. So we basically operate as conservative as possible in the rules to execute. And that's what allowed us almost an 18-month runway earlier than most other funds in the nation, which is a huge first mover advantage in terms of how we executed the program. But what that meant was, to bring this together, was we did single asset deals. So all these deals are single asset deals. It actually allows, without going down another rabbit hole, it's much more cleaner for recycling of capital, um, which was uncertain at the time when we were lossing our first, uh, issuing our first funds. And then we continue to do single asset deals because I think most fund managers would tell you, if you're raising on an average, you know, 10, 15, $20 million in equity on a deal, so you're talking 50 to $60 million total capitalization deals, those are big enough where you could just raise one at a time. If you're raising $1 million to $2 million equity checks, that becomes operationally challenging to do a bunch of different deals. It just doesn't give you the scale. So our deals are large enough where it makes most sense to do that. And we think that structure gives the most flexibility to take advantage of all the different incentives in the program. And how many deals have you done so far to date? And are your investors typically investing in, in multiple deals at a time? Yes, we're on our 10th deal today. Again, we're really happy to say that. I don't know many developers that have done 10 Oz deals. Uh, we haven't raised the most Oz equity, uh, you know, over 100 million, as you mentioned, but we definitely take pride in the number of deals we've done, which is obviously partially correlated to us being one of the first. But uh, we're definitely focused. We're big buyers of the program. We continue to be um, fans of the program and will be for years to come. But yes, I mean, typically investors for us will invest across multiple deals. So that's a way to, in other words, synthetically create a multi-asset fund. You just pick three different investments, one industrial, one multi, one office. You've kind of created your own fund in that regard. So that's what a lot of our investors do. You know, in a typical investor for us, well, we have about 250, I'd say high net worth, all credited investors. That's all of our money is in credited investors. And we have investors ranging from, I'd say, 10 million net worth up to a billion. And I'd also know as our company's grown, I mentioned our 8 million square feet and we have a large industrial business, we actually raise institutional capital as well. And that's a big part of the business. So a lot of our deals in the future focus more on, you know, typically institutional capital but our opportunity zone business will continue to grow for years to come because we believe in the program. We have a number of investors that, that get to benefit from those incentives. 
Let's talk about years to come. To use the baseball analogy again, I, th- I think you're right. We're we're in the early innings still. We still have our starting pitcher in, I guess you could say. But uh, you know, eventually this program is going to wind to a conclusion in 2026, 2027-ish. What do you see looking ahead now, Chad, some trends to keep an eye on, Opportunity Zone specific for the rest of the year here? We're recording this in early 2022. So for this year and, and beyond, what do you think we'll see with Opportunity Zones? Well, I hope we continue to get the word out there. I think that we're starting to become a more of a hyper focus on opportunity zones when, uh, given the political changes, there might be much more restrictive uh, taxes in terms of tax brackets. I think some of that got pulled back in terms of gains. I think if, you know, if rates on gains went to income type levels, there would have been, I think you would have saw 100 billion would have came into the program in 2022 easily. Um, yeah. to give everyone some perspective, uh, and there's different ways to look at this, but, I know Novogratz looks at it this way. There's been about $20 billion raised on their tally of Opportunity Zones since inception in the program. The government's released some numbers, which are about double to triple of that, so about $60 billion. And to, get, to quantify that, and this number's higher now because the market's higher, but a couple of years ago, the, the number quoted for unrealized gains domestically in our country was $7 trillion, right? So right. if you're talking about 1% of that number comes in, we're getting to about 70 billion of the program. That's about where we're arguably at if you're using the government numbers in my regards. That's pretty low. In my view, that, that's low. I was hoping, um, don't hold me to this, but my hope was that about, you know, you get about half a trillion dollars would arguably potentially come into this program, which sounds like a big number, but again, that's over eight years, right? 18 to the end of 26. So that was really the goal I thought. But if you're getting 5% of that $7 trillion, that's about $350 billion. And again, I think we're around 70 now. So I think things will pick up. I think it's still early. I think if things pick up, they will pick up in terms of speed. And there will be a lot more money that will come into the programs. So the other point I would make outside of hopefully increased capital coming into the Opportunity Zone program is I hope the government relooks at the program as we continue along, recognizes the positive forces that are around the program that are affecting municipalities. Again, we're creating rateables that didn't exist, which benefits municipalities for years to come, which is a critical impact. And that money, those rateables, those tax revenues flow down to investors. And I always try to really explain that point because it's so important. If you buy a piece of dirt that was arguably worthless and you build a $50 million building and you're talking a 2% tax rate in general, that's a million dollars in rate, you know, it's 50 million in rateables. That's a million dollars of revenue for those municipalities for into perpetuity. So I think as the government really understands this, it remains bipartisan support, which I believe it will. I hope the government will continue potentially extending even this final December 31st, 2026 cutoff to invest in gains. I think it's unlikely they'll probably bring back this discount incentive, which did uh, the final 10% did just go away at the end of 21. But again, most of the return alpha for opportunities on tax incentives is, is really back end loaded on the tax free growth of future gains. So I hope the government will look at that because I think there's a lot more, again, money that could come into this program over time. Yeah, absolutely. I share your optimism, Chad, and I share your hopes that the government can extend it a little bit. The one thing that I'd like to see is, and I, I think you're on the same page as I am, is just more education. I mean, you mentioned you were three and a half years into the program. We're still talking to financially sophisticated investors and advisors, and they don't really get opportunity zones yet. So I think as each day that goes by, the program becomes less and less valuable in a certain way because you're getting closer to that deferment date, but hopefully also just absorption of knowledge about the opportunity zone space within the larger investment community continues to grow. So 
I'm optimistic. Let's get back to a point that we touched upon a few minutes ago about office and businesses and opportunity zones. Saxum recently moved one of their offices into an opportunity zone building. Why was that important for you? And what do you think is the best way to entice more businesses to relocate or to form in opportunity zones? Yeah, at Saxon, we really believe in putting our money where our mouth is. We do it on all of our deals. We put our own capital on our own deals and taking it to the next level. We think we build timeless quality buildings and we think they're well located. So when you start connecting all those dots, we did want to have a presence down in the Texas Triangle area specifically. Again, we had this opportunity in Austin. So we built just an amazing structure. Again, on budget on time, 64,000 square feet of creative office space in East Austin, which is a, one of the fastest growing submarkets of Austin. And we decided to move a handful of our employees down here and actually move in into our own space so that we had built ourselves. So we're definitely excited to make that known that, A, do we not only believe in opportunity zones to build quality real estate, to create rateables and all those different things I talked about, but we also believe that investors in terms of businesses, forward-thinking businesses, growing businesses, should really consider for a number of reasons, moving their headquarters to these opportunity zones, because based on the numbers that are coming in of that, again, from Novogratic, from that 20 billion or so that's been raised, only 1% has been for opportunity zone businesses, the true operating companies outside of real estate. So we think there's a whole story that's not to say it's arguably being missed there. I think it's not being told as effectively as it needs to be. Because the upside for businesses that could trade at multiples, you know, 100 time multiples for some of these tech companies, what have you, different creative tech companies, there's massive incentives for them to think about opportunity zones. So again, this is partially fits our strategies as well, because again, not many of these deals are being done in office. They're mostly multifamily deals in the opportunity zone space. So we know office, we're versed in it. We could build it. So hopefully is there's more supply of office and opportunity zones that will create some more opportunities there as well. But yes, it's something we're definitely excited about. Again, we wouldn't tell anyone to do anything that we wouldn't do with our own money. So we're doing it ourselves and we hope we get the word out there for any entrepreneur. Our company was founded in the creative entrepreneurial spirit and we hope that other companies doing the same will keep the opportunities and program in mind when they think of location. Yeah, I think that's great, Chad. I like that you're putting your money where your mouth is and I agree. I think if you build that office space, you build some of that infrastructure around it and the businesses will come. I mean, if you can only imagine oh, what if the next Google or the next Apple or the next Facebook is uh, formed as an opportunity zone business, the incredible <laughs> profits and uh, impact that that can make in, in some of these communities. So Chad, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and learning more about Saxum Real Estate. Before we go, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Saxum? Thanks, Jimmy, for your time. We really appreciate the opportunity to be here. We appreciate all the information that you put out as well. It's all first class. So thank you for that as well. To learn more about Saxum, you can go to our website. It's www.saxumrealestate.re.com. You could also follow us on LinkedIn. So uh, yeah, we look forward to, uh, you know, we have all of our emails of all of our team members are on there as well. And if anyone has, of course, uh, investors are always happy to reach out. And of course, if there's any brokers that maybe listen to this or other developers that have opportunity zone sites that they're looking to capitalize, we're always looking for a great opportunity zone deal to participate in. So please keep us in mind. Perfect. That's saxumre.com. Please do go visit their website if you'd like to learn more. And also for our listeners out there today, I will, as always, have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. 
And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Chad and I discussed on today's show. Chad, again, thanks for taking some time today to speak with me and my listeners. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.